welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with Alex and Stephanie Miller, discussing Miller's most recent book, A Kind of Confession. The book is a secret look into Alex Miller's writing life, spanning 60 years of creativity and inspiration. As a young man in 1961, Miller left his work as a ringer in Queensland and set out to achieve his dream of becoming a serious novelist. It was not until 1988 that his first novel, Watching the Climbers on the Mountain, was published. Twelve more novels would follow, all bestsellers, many published internationally. The selection from his notebooks and letters makes it abundantly evident that Miller has been devoted to finding and telling stories that are profound, substantial and entertaining. Stories that capture both intellect and emotion. Miller's fascinating life is told in a personal behind-the-scenes exploration of his struggle to become a published writer, his determination, his methods of creative thought, and the sources of his inspiration. His writing, sometimes in anger and despair, sometimes with humour and joy, whether created for publication or for private mediation, is alive with ideas, moral choices, commentary, encouragement, criticism, and love. The Millers were interviewed by Mark Rubo. Here's Mark to introduce. It's a great pleasure for me to speak to two dear friends, Def Miller and Alex Miller, about their new, it's a collaboration really, isn't it? Of a collection of, of Alex's writings with Def's sort of comments interspersed between. It's called A Kind of Confession. So I'm very privileged to have Steph and Alex here. I'm coming from a injury country, land of the Kulin Nation. I guess Steph, the first thing is how did this collection come about you've done one earlier one haven't you or yes there was a collection the simplest words back in about 2015 I think and there were a few letters in there but they were previously published letters that Alex had written the idea for continuing with collecting things began there but I didn't really do anything about it for a while But, yes, I sort of just kept on popping things into my computer when I saw what I thought was a good letter, started organising them, and then I mentioned it to Annette Barlow and she thought it was a good idea. We happened to be working through some notebooks as well because there are some notebooks going to the State Library. I thought, oh, I better save some of this stuff before it disappears out of our house. So I made another file of what I thought were interesting entries. And then the two sort of gelled together and made a really good story. And Annette really loved it in the end. So, yeah, that's good. We've had her support the whole way through. And, Alex, how did you feel about this project? Well, I uh, didn't really know a lot about it because I was doing something else, writing probably a book. I knew Steph was doing it, something I would never have dreamed of doing. I mean, combing through literally thousands of my letters. I've only kept letters, and that's emails mostly. I don't know when we started emails, but uh, whenever that was, the letters, I then decided straight away, this is the way we write letters now, rather than thinking, oh, it's just for brief messages, which I suppose it might have been originally. I'm not sure. I believed in writing decent letters, mostly in a secret way to myself, but to very good trusted friends, good readers, 
intelligent people who were close. I really left it to Steph totally because with the previous collection, I'd interfered and my interference hadn't been welcome. So I said in that one that I wanted the letters or the essays about art to be in it and at the beginning. And it and Steph both decided they weren't going to put the essays about art in it at all. I thought, oh, well, back off. You're not really involved. So I did back off, unfortunately, because they made a terrific job of it, as they have with this. It's, I mean, I've managed to tell a story out of all those thousands of letters over the years. Christ. And I went through Alex's old hard drives and so on, and there were a few letters from way back when they were typed letters that Alex had kept a copy of but hadn't really kept copies of many of those letters. And also the fact that on the keyboard he types very quickly and he wrote a lot of letters by email, whereas before (laughs) then using a typewriter the letters were pretty brief. You've been collecting these things. Did you know what you were doing it for or...? Well, I did think that there could be a book because the letters to me are interesting. I mean, they might only be interesting to me. I don't know. I hope other people find them interesting Mm. too. But they do tell a lot about Alex's writing, particularly with each of the novels, what he was thinking of and how he could get the tone of voice, where the material came from, from within his own life and more recent experiences Mm. as well. So I had the idea of presenting his writing life through letters rather than any other aspect of his life. and wasn't meant to be a personal... Not really, and there are personal things, and I haven't sort of edited any of that stuff out, but he does tend to write. When he's sort of mulling over a new novel, for example, he will tend to write to people sort of trying out the ideas. Right. trying out the voice and so on. So, for example, the first book that's mentioned in there, The Timington Knot, he happened to be writing to Chris Hemsley about stuff in Somerset when he was a boy and the hunt there and so on. And he had a lot of feedback via Chris's newsletter that was sort of a roneo'd sheet that went around to people. And he and Chris talked about it and Alex thought, well, maybe there is a book here. And it sort of developed into the Timington Knot. So sort of letter writing has often had a, an important role in the way the books develop. And I think that's been, for all of the books, there's been a lot of letter writing to various people. In a couple of letters you're quite scathing about poetry. You did write some poetry yourself. I think the poetry's in my prose, if there is any. Something like, for example, The Sitter's. Sue Wolfe and Frank Morehouse called it poetry. We used to call it verse. Now I've read volumes and volumes of poetry. Of course, studied at Melbourne Uni with all the romantics, including Keats, I suppose. There's a long verse collection published of mine in The Australian, and it's called The Song of the Good Visa rather than The Poem of the Good Visa. I like the connection between poetry and song, repetition, chanting, rhythm, all those things. One of my favourite poets, really, is the fellow who wrote Fairy Queen, Spencer. Spencer, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because if you read Spencer for half an hour, 
you're kind of lulled and mesmerized into a peculiar state. Which sort of poetry of that can do. There's a lot of pretentious bullshit about poetry that isn't, that there isn't about prose. Generally, I mean, there's the odd occasion when someone is breaking the mould or doing something like that. The book follows sort of the arc of of Alex's writing career, doesn't it? And it's really interesting to see how he changes. You write also about the difficulties in getting published, particularly Tibbington Knot, where you couldn't find an Australian publisher for that, could you? Well, couldn't because I think in those days, and I didn't really understand publishing and I only understand it a little bit now, the book was set in England. Oh, no. They're Australian writer, mate. You said it's your book in fucking England. What's going on? Oh, we'd love to. It's a good little story. No, no, no. So it was sort of seriously an understanding of how narrow and how enclosed the Australian literary world was at that stage. Really, it was so limited, I guess. They just couldn't see the distribution for it. They couldn't see this, couldn't see that. They loved the story. That sort of was a bit dispiriting, and I didn't get it published, but I thought, well, I know what I've got to do. I've got to write something with a bit of sensational stuff in it, a bit of sex and a bit of violence. So I wrote a book virtually over the weekend called (laughs) Watching the Climbers on the Mountain, which is based on my own experience and my lust for dreams as well on the first cattle station I worked on. I wrote that as a kind of an insult, really, in a way to the sort of people that were going to read it. They read it pan just said, yeah, wow, great. So they published it anyway. The first review I ever had for a novel was for that novel, and it was in the Sydney Morning Herald, and it was headlined, Peaks and Troughs of Australian (laughs) Literature. It was one of those reviews at the bottom of the page with reviewing a couple of books. I was the trough. I can't remember who the other person was, but we've never heard of him since. He was the peak. I was looking over the list of books, and you've published 13 novels and one book of non-fiction. Quite a big output, really. I didn't publish a novel till I was 50. The 14th novel is with Alan and Unwin at the moment. But I think I'm going to run out of years before I run out of stories. I do remember that in one of the letters you're writing to someone, I can't recall who, but you're saying, you wonder if you've got anything left in you. Well, we all go through that, don't we? Mm. I mean... When you retired from the bookshop, which you sort of did, it's not something you do overnight, is it? Maybe I didn't have anything left to me at that point, but then the well filled up. I've always been aware that you drew a lot of your characters from real life, but the letters sort of make that more obvious, that a lot of your stories are based on real people. Yeah, pretty much all of them. I write about the stuff of life as it has been for me, involving all these other people. I find it very difficult to write about people I think are as nasty, people I don't like. I guess it's a limitation. I have tried. I tried in Journey to the Stone Country to write about this Aboriginal guy among the many other people I was writing about, not the hero of the book, Mm. and his partner. He is a pretty tough guy. I met him a few times with Cole, who's the... uh, guy on whom Bo is based and Cole has taken me around and he was having this meeting with a bunch of other cultural leaders 
up there. I said, I'll leave you to it. And he said, no, 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 come in. You need to come in and listen to this. So I, I stayed for the meeting and there was this tall, very handsome Aboriginal guy who was the representative of another group and he came along and his wife was following him and he spoke to her as if she was crap. God, it was so embarrassing. He didn't eyeball me. He said to Cole, so who's this? And Cole said, he's a friend of mine. He's a writer. And he said, yeah, maybe you can write a book about me and laughed. And I thought, all right, you're in. I thought I'll make him short and ugly so he won't <laughs> recognise himself. He recognised himself. They all bought copies of the book, of course, once it won the Miles <laughs> Frank, and they all recognised Kyle and Liz, the real people. They didn't want their names out there because they said black politics will kill us, you know. And I said, oh, well. so I just said, you know, the real people and paid a tribute to them, but everyone recognised him straight away. They said, hey, this is you. And this guy said, fuck, you made me a short-ass bastard. <laughs> but he recognised the style of himself straight away. Right. And by the time I finished, I understood him and liked him. I wouldn't yeah. say someone I want to go around with or be yeah. with all the time, not that sort of liking, but I could understand where he was coming from. You know, they say understanding is half of forgiveness. Uh, so on the one hand, his behaviour towards his wife I thought was converging on evil because she must have felt terrible, really terrible, in front of all these men, the way he spoke about her. He didn't look at her, but it was just so embarrassing. One of the things that comes in your career is a great affection and respect for Indigenous culture. Do you think that was from your experience working in the outback? Definitely. One of my first jobs was working on Augustus Downs cattle station in the Gulf of Carpentaria, which is mm. Alexis Wright's country. The Aboriginal stockmen there, there are about 30 of them, and there was only two white fellas, and I was one of them. They had never been off their country at that stage because it was before equal pay, which they never got anyway. Mm. And when equal pay came, the people who owned Augustus Downs, and I'm not sure who the owners were, so I won't name them, like everyone else, they kicked the Aborigines off. So we can't afford this. See you later. Well, mm. they'd never been off their country. So when I met them, they weren't sneaking around looking guilty like they were when they went to town. They were on their own country, totally confident, 100% in control. They were all full blood, all initiated men. You didn't meet the rest of the families. Of course, women and kids, they were kept well out of your way. They were of their culture, 100%, plus working physically with people every day, you become friends. All that stuff mm. drops away. Yeah. It doesn't drop away totally. I mean, there were rules yeah. and regulations. And the rules and regulations were the rules and regulations imposed by the senior blackfellow. He laid down the rules and he knew all the stories. Plus he spoke the languages of tribes and groups going way over to the west, way over to the and a whole bunch of drovers came through. We were out in the cattle camp, I suppose we were 60, 70 miles from the station homestead by then. He never addressed me, but he told one of my mates, Blackfellow, about my age at the time, well, well, there's a mob coming through from Western Australia. They'll be here in about a month. Well, we didn't have mobile phones or anything. He just knew. Sure enough, around about the time when it came, we picked up some dust on the horizon and they had this big mob of 
what we call Parker Bullocks, big old Bullocks, and they'd been on the road for a couple of years. But he spoke their language. No one else did. Mm. No, it was a huge privilege. I knew nothing about Australian racism or history. Mm. So I kind of assumed this is it. This is the story. These people are here. They're in charge. They were absolutely in charge. I mean, okay, they didn't own the place, but in a sense, of course, they did. It was their country. And then they got Mm. kicked off. That was for the big tragedy. That was where all these outstations stations and all that stuff originated. Because before that, they had a place to live, which was home. I began to understand the limitations were imposed on them when I left. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving, you know, and, and this friend said, I'd love to come with him, mate. But he couldn't. In order to come with me, he would have had to go into Cloncurry, see the police and get a permit to travel. They'd just laugh at him if he went in there. He'd just give them a chance to laugh at him. So I thought then, oh, shit, this is pretty heavy stuff. But I was at the very beginning of an understanding, at the edge of it there. In the south here where we live, there's this constant sense of much more of a kind of anxiety about being with Aboriginal people than there is up north. Up north Queensland and those places and even in north northwestern New South Wales, you're with Aboriginal people whether you know it or not. I mean, it's another world than this one. It's much more complex socially in that respect. People here, not for their own fault, but they just don't know any Aborigines because there aren't any around. Some who begin to make themselves more evident now, which is fantastic because becoming part of the Southern culture too, but in an uncertain and anxious sort of a way, which is not there. Like, for example, in the North, someone will badmouth Aborigines generally and you think, oh, racist bastard, eh? And you go and have a feed with him and half the people at his house are Aborigines. You say to him, yeah, but look, I thought you were racist. Oh, yeah, but these are my mates. So it didn't go very deep. It's more of a working-class laissez-faire. And, of course, intermarriage is legion up there. You don't really know who's Aboriginal and who's not. And then, of course, I met Cole, uh, who was the hero, I suppose, of Journey to the Stone Country. He was the first person I'd met for 40 or 50 years, more, more than 50 years, who had been a ringer, a ringer being a stockman up there, you know. So we sat down and had a cup of tea and started talking about in the language of the stockman, there was no one down here in Melbourne. Who would understand. No. So mm. you, I didn't talk about it. It didn't exist. Yeah. Those sort of limitations are enormous. And, and of course, so also that sort of superior attitude that Southerners, Melbourne in particular, have towards the Queensland. I've seen you with Cole and I've noticed the great deep affection and understanding between the two of you. The other thing I was, Steph, struck about your selections was Alex's letters and correspondences when he was working on the biography of Max Blatt. He had a profound impact on Alex, but also you became very much involved yes. in that travelling and researching. And Once Alex began doing the research, we seemed to collect other people who were interested and wanted to support Alex and help. So when we ended up actually going to Israel towards the end of the research period, we had with us a whole entourage because Alex wrote to Ron and Innes and said, we're going to Israel. Ron wrote back, we're coming. And we had Eva Florsheim in Norway, who's a good friend of 
Liat Shaham, Max's niece. She said, I'm coming. And then also Fiona Harari, who Alex admitted at a festival in Adelaide, she was a fantastic researcher and found a few things for Alex as well. She said, can I come too? <laughs> we were all there along with Liat and Yossi Blatt over there, Liat's family, on a beautiful farm in the Galilee region. We spent several days there just talking to Liat and looking at old photos and sharing some of the research and so on. So Alex has written all that up in the book. But we started years before going to Germany and looking at the archives there. That's right, yeah. Into Poland where we met wonderful people. The whole thing was just a wonderful adventure and a great thing. For our listeners, perhaps just explain the importance Max Blatt on your life. I met him when I was 21 and it was mm. fresh out of the bush. I came down to Melbourne as a lost soul, totally, and I decided sometime earlier to become a writer because I thought, what can I do with my life that I won't get sick of, where I'll be totally in charge of the thing. But when I met Max, I had a vision of being a serious writer, which was still a long way off because I believed I needed an education about the history and culture that I belonged to, Western history, Western culture. When I first met Max and his wife Ruth at their place, he gave me a copy of Thomas Munn's Dr Faustus, which would be one of the most difficult and um, complex novels of the 20th century, easily. Um, so he gave it to me with this, it was a kind of affirmation of his belief in it. You can be a writer of this quality, which is not to say that I am or have been. What he placed in me was this trust. I think we all know what a huge effect that has when you're young and a bit lost to find an older person who, he was my father's age, in his mid-50s then, who was like coming home. I would go and see him pretty much every week for a long time and we'd sit and talk in the front room of the house in Lucan Street in Caulfield. And it was like talking to yourself in a way, you know. It was just beautiful, beautiful time. And when we eventually got in touch with Liat, his niece in Israel, after about four or five years of research, she said, you sound just like him. And I said, you sound just like him too. <laughs> and it was meeting Liat was like meeting Max again. She said, do you remember me? What do you mean, remember you? And she said, I spent a year living at Max and Ruth's place when I was at school. I had a year off from Israel in Melbourne. And you, she said, you used to come all the time. And whenever you came, Max would say to me, take your homework into the back room so Alex and I can have sitting room at the front on our own. And she said, I'd try and get to the door first to see you. Don't you remember me? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> you know. It was really completing a magic circle for me, meeting her. We didn't actually speak when we met at the hotel we were staying at. Steph and I were there. We came down in the lift knowing she'd be waiting for us. And we just had this very lengthy cuddle. It really was like coming home. And I've always written in a sense with feeling in my mind, would he approve of this? He used to say that writing 
can be and ought to be an honourable occupation, and that had a great meaning for me. might yeah. sound a bit pretentious now in the 21st century, and at the age of 87, maybe it is, but I'm still hanging on to a few old <laughs> beliefs and values. Well, that's lovely. I think maybe that's a nice note to end on. Well, it's lovely to talk to you, Mark. It's great. I really enjoyed reading it. So, Steph, thank you for, for collecting it all. Thank you, Mark. It's lovely to get your feedback and comments on it. Thank you both so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. A Kind of Confession is available via all reading stores and from our website. We'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign into e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.